ask now as we take a look at your word that you would give me the grace of being clear. Give us the ability to understand and then to live out what we've heard today. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Father, thank you for your great faithfulness to us, your people. And I think about the, you know, the years at this church, only five for myself, a month for Ian. Um, but you have been faithful. And we can look and see your work, the fruits of the labors of this church. And we give you glory for all of it and for all that will come. So, would you keep demonstrating that faithfulness to us, even now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so, you know, the big question was going to be, you know, do I, do I, you know, preach a sermon on this installation service Sunday and tell Ian all the things I want him to do, you know? All the things I'm going to take off my list now and hand over, you know? No. Uh, no, actually, we're going to keep going in our Reformation series. And this is the real deal, as Rob said. This is the real deal. Just kidding. Um, so we're, we're taking up. I like that. I'm going to start using that. Is that all right? Okay, there we go. This is the real deal here. Um, it, but if you didn't hear the real deal last week, we had Mel Ellenwood with us, one of our missionaries from Josiah Venture. And he preached an incredible message on discipleship, like the different stages of being a disciple. If you didn't hear that, you need to go listen to it. There's a podcast. So don't plug in right now. Don't tune me out, please. But but you really need to listen to that. Um, I was super encouraged by it, and I thought every, everybody should hear that. So please uh, listen to that online. Uh, I commend that to you. It was great. It was fantastic. So um, I want to deal with an, a really touchy topic today. Every once in a while we do one of these, right? You know, like we've we, we've done the hard stuff here. Uh, I want to talk on, as we go through this Reformation series, on what kind of unity should evangelicals hope to experience with the Catholic Church? Now, I know we have uh, ex-Catholics and we have current Catholics, and we're all here together in the same room. So this is going to get awkward, right? It's going to be good. It's good awkward, because awkward is awesome, as I've heard. Um, and uh, so we're, we're going to go there. But I'm going to tell you, before I say anything, this is not going to be a go us evangelicals. I'm not going to give high fives on the way out, okay? I'm not going to do a victory lap. This is not going to be go us, we're evangelicals. It, it's not that. Actually, there ought to be a lot of humility because anything we've received, we've received from the Word of God and from the Lord. And our understanding of it should be taken with humility. So, uh, as you hear this, understand that's the way I want to preach it. And, and, and not get on a high horse and whatever that even means. And, and, and try to talk down and whatever. But I want to start, I think if you're going to talk about this topic as divisive as it can be, you ought to understand, like, what is unity in the church? Like, what is unity? And to do that, we had to look at Ephesians 4. Now, Rob already mentioned Ephesians 4 today, so if you would turn there, uh, we're going to take a look. If you need a Bible, there's one. There should be one right in front of you, a blue Bible. And I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 
four. All right. Let's start with one through three. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I love how Paul starts chapter 4. He has this great doxology in chapter 3 where he's like praising God like in verse 20. You know, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask and imagine, you know. So he's praising God and then he wants to get really practical here and say, you know what, I want to urge you to live out your calling, to live a worthy life. And part of that is maintaining the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I love how he says it. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, or as a prisoner of the Lord. And I love this because he's writing from prison. And it's kind of like, you know, you, you, you could say like, uh, it, let's say you're having a conversation with a grammar teacher and you use the word ain't. And they look at you like this and they say, as a grammar teacher, please don't talk like that. Or let's say you're in a conversation with your buddy who's a police officer and you were saying how fast you were driving last night on the way home from Pumpkin Fest. And he might say to you, as a police officer, please slow down. You know, so, so there's kind of this, you know, like when, when you, when you got somebody in a certain role and they're speaking to you from that role, you know, there's some things that might just get to them, you know, and Paul is saying, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Like, I am locked up because I've taken a stand for pure doctrine. You know, I've taken a stand for Christ. Like, we just got through Acts over the summer, so like, this should be fresh in your mind. Like, Paul is like standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ against Judaism, you know, against people that have rejected Jesus as a Messiah, and now he's locked up for it, awaiting trial. With some measures of freedom, it's kind of a house arrest in a sense. But as a prisoner of the Lord, I want you to live out your calling. And part of that is, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, every time I read that verse, maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, I instantly think, this is what we got to do. we we got to do this. It's all on you. Keep the unity of the Spirit. But what I think I miss sometimes, and what jumped out at me today, is unity of the Spirit. Unity of the, if I just take if I just take that phrase, unity of the Spirit, I'll tell you a couple things about it. It is a prepositional phrase. There's the grammar part of me coming out. Unity of the Spirit, but it, it's called a genitive of production in Greek, and that's interesting because I don't see those very much. I've never even like. I never even like thought about that very much, but it's interesting because it's kind of rare. And, it, and the idea is unity of the spirit. It's a spirit-produced unity, but beyond that, it's a unity that the spirit keeps. Uh, um, um, he's involved in. He's continually involved in. So he authors it, and he's involved in it. So think of it like this: If unity were like a bicycle, if unity were like a bicycle, the Holy Spirit. Is, is giving you that push as you're learning to ride. And he's, and he's helping you pedal 
He's energizing you to pedal the bicycle of unity. Now, you still have to make the decision to keep pedaling. But He's the one that does it. He did it. So, unity, first of all, we can say, number one, unity, what unites us as a church? The Holy Spirit unites us as a church. It's united by the Holy Spirit. I'm not producing the unity. The Spirit's producing the unity. And I just got to keep pedaling. And watch out for the people that are going to poke a stick in the spokes, right? And make me go flying off. Because there are those divisive people. You know, and, 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 and they, they're divisive over insignificant reasons. Not major reasons. Not like someone's teaching heresy. They're dividing over insignificant things. They're causing issues and they're poking the uh, stick in the spokes and we're going flying. But I got to keep pedaling. I got to make sure my brakes are maintained. I, I, I got to make sure there's air in the tires. I got to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. But He's the one, the Spirit's the one that produces unity because we're told, right? We're told in Scripture that we are baptized into the body of Christ. Holy Spirit put you into the church. Jesus prayed, Lord, may they be one as we are one. So Jesus wants us to be one. But it's a oneness that is first produced by the Holy Spirit. And i got to keep that in mind that He did this. He pushed me on the bike. He got this thing going. And i got to keep pedaling. That's my part. Even as He empowers me and empowers you to give you the energy to keep pedaling. I think the way that you do that, by the way, is doing some of the first things in this in verse two there. You know, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. You gotta do the one another's if you want to have unity in the church. You gotta do that. So that's the first thing. We're united by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, if you look at me, look with me at, uh, four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's a lot of ones there. Can we just put it that way? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So number two, we are united by correct theology, correct doctrine. We have one Lord. We have one faith. There's one correct understanding of the faith. There's one baptism. And that's even hard to say out loud. One baptism? I grew up Presbyterian. We sprinkle. I don't sprinkle. I think immersion's the way to go. And so there are divisions all over the place on the issue of baptism, and yet baptism's something that's supposed to unite us. It's supposed to unite us. But different understandings end up dividing us. So on the good side of things, we ought to be united by correct theology. How does that work? How, how can correct theology keep us all united? And I think there's some people that have suggested different ways to understand levels of doctrine. We'll put that up on here. That, that there's different levels of our doctrinal convictions. Let's put it like this. Now, I got this out of ESV Study Bible. This is not like some rocket science secret thing. You know, this is not like the Word of God on display. This is just someone trying to put together a way of understanding when we disagree on something, right? At the top level, 
you've got absolutes. I think in some circles this is actually called dogma. You know, it's like it is the top level. It's the absolutes. It's like Jesus is God. You know, so so you're either in or you're not on that. And if you're not in, you're not part of this whole thing, right? And Jesus died on the cross for sins. We put that at absolute level. That God reveals himself as a trinity. We put that at the absolute level. Underneath that is our, our, our convictions. These are things that often end up separating denominations. You, you probably put baptism under number two. You sprinkle, do you immerse children or just uh, uh, believers that can express that belief? How do we do that? And you probably put that under convictions because it has it, it has a lot to do with how you do church how you read certain scriptures, and it's going to end up, have you're going to have practices that look a lot different, and that's going to bring some division there. Then you have opinions. Uh, in, in my opinion, an opinion is, when's the rapture going to happen? You know, a lot of your eschatology, your end time stuff, I would file under opinions, except for the return of Christ. I think that when we bump up to absolutes, Jesus is coming back. I think that one's at the top, but I think a lot of our other views of revelation probably are in the opinion category. In other words, opinions are things that we can be at the same church, worshiping freely together, and have differences on it. Now, sometimes people want to elevate their opinions and bump them up to convictions, and unfortunately, sometimes even want to bump them up to absolutes. And that's when people fight in the church, and hopefully, hopefully a pastor comes alongside you and says, it's not an absolute. This is an opinion. It's okay for us to hold an opinion strongly, but not divide over it. And the free church is great at this, by the way. If you're new to the EFCA, we're really good at saying, let's major on the majors and minor on the minors. Let's keep the opinions at that level, and let's not get all up in arms about it. And then fourthly, I love that there's a fourth category. I don't know if you should think like this, but, but there's questions. There's things we just don't know, you know, and there's lots of different kinds of questions you could ask. Um, I love the question I got last um, during the Heaven series last fall, during cross training. We were, I was asked, "Is there going to be hunting in heaven?" I, there's, there, you know, there, there's no way I know that. Some of you are sure that there is. Some of you are sure they're not. You know, I don't know. There's got to be to be happy, right? You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> but in any case, uh, there are some things. There's questions. There's no way I can tell you that. Are you going to see your pet in heaven? Well, I, I can certainly see how God cares for animals, but I, 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 you might have an opinion about that, but certainly it's more in the realm of a question. You know, we're not even going to put it to the level of opinion. It's just a question. I'm sorry. I know it's going to be a controversial sermon, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Man. Um, wow. All right. There'll be some comments afterwards, some angry emails, right? Um, okay. Number three. Um, let's jump down. I'm jumping over the section that Rob referred to during the installation part where uh, where the Lord gives pastors to churches and evangelists and apostles. And, and, and their job is to teach people and to bring unity into the church through, through correct teaching and through training and those kinds of things. Like they are, they ought to be unifiers, pastors and leaders ought to be, okay? But now that I want to jump down then. Uh, let's go to verse, uh, where am I? I looked at the wrong chapter here. I want to do verse 14. 
flip the page. Here we are. I should just do 13. Until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So I see the word unity here. I'm going to read it again. So pastors equip people for works of service. And then verse 13 says, until we reach the unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God. So number three, the church is united in our faith and knowledge of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to put it like this. We're united by our relationship to Jesus Christ because this knowledge is not just I read the Gospels and I have some historical information. This is a knowledge of I know Him. He's my Savior. I can talk to Him. We're united by that. Have you ever... Let me put it this way. Have you ever met somebody for the first time? They were strangers before and you started a conversation and you realized like they lived in a, in a similar city that you did, like the same city you did for a while. And then you find out maybe they were in some of the same circles you were in, maybe the same church or the same college. And then you find out they're friends with one of your friends. And once you find out they're friends with one of your friends, you start talking about that friend, right, don't you? And you share like stories. Let me tell you one about this guy, you know. I went to college with this guy. I got some great stories. I never heard that story. Let me tell you a story about him. And so you start sharing about the same friend and you realize we have this commonality here. And the same is true with Christ according to this. We're growing up together in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. I've never physically met Jesus. I've never shaken his hand. never looked into Jesus' eyes. And yet I know him well enough that I can talk about him. And you know him well enough you can talk about him to me. And we're talking about the same person. And I see your love for him, and it's real, it's genuine. And you see mine, and you're encouraged by hearing me talk about mine. And we're talking about the same person whom we have never physically met. How can that be? Because faith and knowledge in Jesus Christ is a real relationship. That's the only way this can be. He's my friend, he's my Savior, he's my Lord. I can talk about him to you. And you know exactly who I'm talking about. Because you know him too. And so you can go across the world and worship in another country and talk to somebody in that church and you realize we're talking about the same guy. The same Savior. The same Lord. And it unites us. Now that, I believe, is what Paul means when he's talking about unity in Ephesians 4. He's given us things that bring us together. Now, I want to come to the more awkward and difficult part. Like, okay, so now... The reformers split from the Catholic Church, right? And if you're in a small group, you know, we're talking about some of the hard things there. Let me give you an example. Uh, we can get the picture of Martin Luther up here. Uh, Martin Luther was called to appear at the Diet of Worms. And, and a diet is not like, you know, the, the food you're not going to eat this week. You know, it's not like that. A, a diet is an assembly, okay? Um, 
the, the guy in the Reformation video we're watching said diet. I thought, that's really smart, isn't it? Diet. But, but I've always heard it diet, so okay, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna do that. Um, and, and so he appears at this imperial assembly, the emperor is there, Charles V, I believe, and, and Luther is asked to recant the books he's written, uh, and the things he has said, and he responds by saying, look, I've written three, there's three kinds of things here, you know, I need to tell you. Number one, some books I've written, everybody agrees with. You know, Catholics and Protestants, you know, we all agree on some of the things that I've written, and they're helpful for building up the church. I can't recant, I can't take back those things, because we all agree on them anyway. And he says, secondly, I have written some things against the Catholic Church and against the Pope, and, I, and I've called out some abuses in the church, and I can't take those back, because then I would, I would be saying it's okay that all these things are happening, and I'm not okay with it, so I can't take those back. He says, thirdly, I've said some things that have probably been a little harsh. And, and again, if you're in our community groups, you know there, there are some harsh things, words that I would not use, that he used in speaking about the Catholic Church. And he says, look, I may have gone too far in some of those things. Yeah. Uh, but, he says, just show me in the Scripture where I have erred, and then I'll take it back. And then scholars are divided on whether Luther actually said these words, but he said basically, it's not safe to go against your own conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. Help me, God. Amen. And then he left, and the emperor issued a, uh, kind of like, you know, we got, we got, you know, Martin Luther is, is kind of like the heretic, you know, and, and we got to capture this guy. But, but he left, and he, and he made it back. Years later, that same emperor, you know, Protestantism is growing. And that same emperor, I believe it's Charles V, he wants to have the political military support of Protestants because they're growing in number. And he was feeling a lot like compromise at that time. And so out of that desire to compromise, John Calvin comes onto the scene. Let me get a picture of him up. And he writes a book out of this whole idea of coming together, and it's called The Necessity of Reforming the Church. So I don't want to give you my best thoughts on can we come together. I'd like you to hear it from Calvin, all right? Uh, not quite as abrasive as maybe something Luther would say, but this is, uh, we can put the thing up, The Necessity of Reforming the Church. This is free online. You know, like you can download this thing and read it. It's kind of lengthy, but very interesting. I just want to tell you his four points that he says in this and let him speak on this topic. He says, worship is a major difference here on how we do this. What Calvin says is the church must worship God according to the scriptures. What he is saying is, if the church comes up with a new tradition, if a person says, I want to worship God this way, and it's not sanctioned by the Bible, or maybe it even seems to go against something in the Bible, you can't do that. It's not about you feeling like I'm honoring God and I want to honor God this way and I'm deciding how I want to honor God. I'm going to do this. Calvin's like, that's not enough that you feel like honoring God. It must be according to Scriptures. So you can't say we're going to pray through the, the saints and address the saints in prayer because the scripture doesn't authorize that. 
It doesn't matter if you're trying to honor God by speaking to the saints. That's not the way the scripture authorizes it. And so you can't do it that way. That would be Calvin's argument. Secondly, he talks about salvation in his book. And he says justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a big deal. And we spent a whole Sunday looking at justification. We've already talked about this. But I want to call your attention to one thing in this. Now, a lot of you have heard this expression, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Forgive me if I'm misrepresenting this. I want to say this correctly. I'm not Catholic, but I did a lot of reading, a lot of studying, trying to figure this out, uh, and, and even looking at Catholic catechism and, and trying to understand that well. But I believe they would agree with us completely 100% on by grace alone in Christ alone. It's that middle phrase where we're different, and in particular, one word out of it, the alone. In other words, if you said to your Catholic friends, I believe justification is by grace through faith in Christ. Or if you even said, by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith. And if you took out that second alone, they would be in complete agreement with you. But the second alone means this. It means we don't cooperate at all with our salvation other than responding in faith. It's just faith. You can't receive it through the sacraments. It's just faith. And once you insert the word alone, it changes our understanding of justification. There's some other things about justification that's changed too. Uh, We could talk about that, but I'm not going to right now. I want to keep going. Uh, Calvin has a couple more things to say. He talks about the sacraments. You're not going to be surprised to hear. He says the church must have a correct understanding of the two sacraments, baptism and communion. Catholics have seven. We've got two. And they don't communicate grace to us. They are something that we celebrate because of our faith. They point to something, a bigger reality. And so Calvin would say there's two, not seven. And then finally, uh, he would say, he talks a lot about church government. And he says pastors have the responsibility of teaching and should pursue holiness. Calvin's thinking about some of the abuses he knows in the Catholic Church. And so he's trying to emphasize the holiness that pastors and priests should be pursuing in their calling. Okay. Now, I'm just looking at Calvin, and I'm going, has the Catholic Church changed so that we could say these are no longer issues? And besides the church government thing, I'll kind of put that off to the side, but the first three, I can say it hasn't changed. Okay, We haven't changed positions. I'll try to put it into writing to help you understand it that way. Um, in 1544, there was the Council of Trent. We'll pull that up. And in the Council of Trent, which was a which was a reaction to the Protestant Reformation, uh, you've got uh, different canons. And canon number nine, and, and there's a lot of them that sound like this. I just picked one that was really clear in how they said it. Um, canon number nine says, if anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. That would mean eternally condemned. That, that's what that word means, anathema. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner's justified, let him be anathema. If you put the word alone in there, you see that we're in different places. Now, 
again, I could be corrected after this, but I, I studied it and I tried to find, can anyone tell me, you know, has this been retracted by the Catholic Church? And as far as I know, from what I have read, it's not been retracted. It stands today. And so all that to say, we are in totally different places in regards to justification. How big of an issue is that? It's a big issue. I put it at number one. I put it at absolutes. That's where I see it. Now, I know that's going to bring up a lot of questions that you'd like me to answer from the pulpit, like, okay, so, so what do we do with that? Do we, how, do we, how do we relate together? Um, I'm saying that there's doctrinal issues that affect unity. But I praise God that we agree with a lot of other things with the Catholic Church. We're probably part of the same, you know, part of a group maybe that opposes abortion. I'm guessing we're right side by side walking together with Catholics and that. Praise God. And there's probably other issues where we're right along the same page. And we can work together. We can get things done together. And I think that's wonderful and we should keep doing that. But I think we do want to be careful when we talk about doctrine. And I once, I once talked to a Lutheran pastor, and we were talking about our doctrinal differences. And I was personally willing to say um, that we had enough in common that I felt like we're, we're on the same page here. You know, um, there, there's enough there that I, I uh, you know, I, I look at you as a brother. I'm not going to say you're a false teacher. And, and I, I wonder what he was going to say, because I brought, I, I'm the one that said it. I'm the one that used the word false teacher. I wanted to see where we're really at. Are we okay, you know? And he said, no, I, I would say that your church teaches false, false teaching. You know, that, that's how it is. And, and I thought, you know, that's a harsh statement, but at least I saw in his eyes humility, a little bit of anguish, and a brotherly affection, I would even say, as he said that. And I totally respected that. And I didn't feel like he was condemning me, you know. So let me say this. If you're going to push me and ask me, because someone's going to, where are we at doctrinally? Will we say this is false teaching? I would say yes, it is. I would go so far as to say it undermines the faith. It undermines justification I put as a number one absolute issue. I remember talking to a young man in youth group one time uh, from the Catholic Church, and he had questions about baptism. You know, oh, there you go, one baptism, right? We see it so differently. And we talked about it. And I'm not the judge of, of that young man's salvation. I'm going to put that out there. You know, I'm not the judge of that young man's salvation. But I just encouraged him, and I hope to encourage some of you to think about it this way. If it's true, if it's true that justification is by faith alone, if Romans says, blessed is the one who doesn't work but believes, if Paul says in Galatians 1 that anyone bringing a different gospel be anathema, that's Galatians 1, how serious is it to make sure you know for sure, is it by faith alone plus cooperating and being part of the sacraments? How does that impact your faith? How does that impact your standing with God? That's what I would challenge you to look at. Let me show you one other place. Would you go to Philippians chapter 4? 
Actually, let's do three. Chapter three. Chapter three, verse four. And I'm appealing to you in humility, in anguish. Let me say this. Philippians 3, 4. If somebody else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I hear faith alone, but I want to call your attention to one other word here. He says in verse 8, I consider all my righteousness, all the stuff that I could do to be righteous, it's garbage. In Greek, some of you have heard this before. It's not going to be a surprise to you. In Greek, that word is skubalon. Skubalon means dung, but in a more shocking way. So Derek and Braden, do you know a word for dung that's a little more shocking and that your parents might not want you to use in the house? Don't say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. Oh, you don't whisper either. Come on. Come on. Saw that, Braden. Paul says, all that righteousness that you may want to do to look good to God, it's just a bunch of scubalon. I bet you thought I was going to say something else. But, but I'm just telling you, scholars say that word has a shocking and vulgar connotation, and that's why Paul used it. To say that I just want the righteousness that's been by faith. That's the righteousness that I want. Give it to me by faith. And that is what unites us as believers. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we love your word. We love your truth. We know that it brings us together. We are in anguish for how it separates us as well. Not because we don't stand on truth. We're willing to separate for your truth. But oh, some of the minor things that we separate over. Some of the small things. Lord, some of us have actually poked the stick in the wheels of the bicycle of unity. And maybe this morning for them, they just need to come clean. And say, yeah, that was me and I'm so sorry. Maybe on the other hand, some of us have been compromising on doctrine and thinking it's all okay and we're all the same doesn't matter what you believe on these things. Help us to unite over the right things. And Father, some of us just need to heed the words of Ephesians 4 and keep speaking the truth in love. Speak the truth in love 
to our Catholic friends. Not to be arrogant. Keep that from us. Not to be rude. Spare us from that. But to be respectful, just like my Lutheran brother was respectful of me. And I felt honored, even as we had differences. Oh Lord, help us. Help us. Speak the truth in love and unite us, I pray, in Christ's name. Thank you.